Hey, 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 your backup plan tribe. If you are new here, welcome aboard to our show this week uh, with a fantastic, fantastic guest who's going to really talk about those real raw conversations about the U.S. Army. Yes, can you believe it? I am a military brat, so I am right there with him on this conversation. So welcome your Backup Plan tribe to this week's show. If you are uh, welcome to Talking Taboo with Tina, it's brought to you by your Backup Plan app. If you're a returning subscriber, welcome. Thank you for returning, watching our shows. My name is Tina Ginn. I am an emergency preparedness coach, a best-selling author of In the Blink of an Eye, Yes, everything happens in the blink of an eye. It's that fast, like this. That's how fast everything, when it's tragic, disastrous, happens. Um, I am a financial expert and a best-selling uh, best-selling author of In the Blink of an Eye and an app developer of Your Backup Plan app. And I'm right here in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I would like to welcome all of our listeners, United States and Canada, which are the two top listeners. Thank you for returning to our show and following, liking and subscribing to our channel. And welcome our German listeners. Our German listeners have uh, been increasing in numbers. Thank you so very much. Meine deutsche Freunde sind unserem Podcast willkommen. Wenn Sie Kommentar haben, können Sie gern Fragen stellen. Also danke für deine Freundschaft. Thank you so very, very much, my German listeners, for listening to our show. Um, and let's get this party started. Today, um, you are here for a reason. If it's brought to you, um, if it brought you to our show, you are definitely here for a reason, because we're going to talk about a real raw conversation about um, Eric Herrera's story called "A Bomb Hunter's Story," and I called this title "My Explosive Journey in Iraq." And I would love for him to, he's going to be open to us. He promised he's going to be open and um, be very open to hearing about what he felt, what he see, what he saw, and what he had happened to him. So I'm very, very excited about our show today. Um you know, we focus on these real raw conversations for a reason with our listeners about their journey with our guests, life-changing event. And this was definitely a life-changing event for Eric. Um, your backup plan app puts your life all into one place. So for any unpredictable circumstance, I can't even talk today while taking that painful aftermath out of a tragedy. What does that mean? Well, one thing you can count on is that you're going to either get sick, get injured, get disabled, or pass away, or lose everything in a tragedy or a disaster. It sounds very gruesome, but that's life. And when you're not prepared, that's when things 
when basically when shit hits the fan, because when uh, we have a thousand wildfires in British Columbia as of yesterday, and that that that's crazy because I believe they said on the news that we had twelve hundred all season last year. We've already just gotten through July, and we're we're not even halfway through the season yet. So it's crazy. And all we lost a town in British Columbia, a whole town got burned down. And these people did not even have a five minute evacuation notice. They basically jumped in their car and drove away while they still could. Um, and so they lost everything. And some of them even lost their cars um, as well. So some of them stayed to try to keep their homes and it's very scary. So I always feel that people are blessed if you're given even a five minute evacuation notice and listeners, what would you take with you if you were given five minutes? What could you grab and what would you need for later? Because all of your documents, all of your items, you know, you're going to have insurance, uh, claims later on, you're going to have all sorts of issues that you may need something that's in that home. And of course, with Surfside in Florida, with the condo collapse a few weeks ago, there was many deaths and many survivors of that condo collapse as well. But they also weren't very lucky in being able to take anything with them. So I want to, you know, really put that through to you guys that sometimes we're not given five minutes in a car accident or as Eric's going to tell us being blown up, you're not given five minutes notice and say, hey, 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 hold on a second. I want my five minutes before anything happens. Doesn't work that way. And sometimes we have to be prepared for the unexpected because you don't know what's going to happen. So let's get this party started. Um, I'm going to bring on Eric Herrera and introduce him to everybody. Welcome, Eric. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so excited for this show. As you know, I'm a military brat and grew up for 30 years uh, with my dad's um, years in the force in the army as well. And um, so I know some of the lingo only because the guys that used to dance with me would ask me who my dad was before they would dance with me. <laughs> and I always used to, you know, basically, okay, let's, let's go, let's not tell them the truth because then they won't dance with me. <laughs> So um, I did my time in Germany, and I understand that you did too, and I'm so excited to hear your story. Eric um, has been out of the military now. He's a U.S. Army veteran. He started as a combat engineer and now an author of A Bomb Hunter Story. Very fascinating story of what military life in Iraq war was like. You don't want to miss this story, everybody. Eric shares his experience talking about how he came to join the army and what he learned from his two deployments in Iraq, clearing the roads for IEDs, which are 
improvised explosive devices on how he handled reintegration into civilian life, which is really tough for a lot of military guys um, because you, you almost have to find what you're good at, what you know from being in the military to what you can do in the outside world. Um, and sometimes that's uh, a little bit difficult. So when Private Eric Herrera began his military journey, he started at the bottom like they all do. Basic training gave him the courage to do things. Um, basic training in military life, and I understand in the RCMP as well as in the police force in Canada, is very similar where they really yell and scream at you. But I'm so excited to hear your story, Eric. And do you want to start from the beginning of when you first joined and tell us all how that journey went for you? Uh, yeah, so um, I graduated high school in 2004. I played a lot of sports, so that team atmosphere um, gave me a lot of that structure. I went to Northern Illinois University, um, and I didn't participate if you want to put it that way. I was more interested in the party life and uh, just hanging out with friends. I never really attended class. I ended up getting kicked out of Northern Illinois University. My mother gave me an ultimatum. Um, gotta go to community college, get a job, live at home. Um, I really did not want to do that. I had a couple of friends at the time decide to go into the military and I decided, hey, why don't I go look into it as well? Um, I didn't want to go infantry because I knew my mother would kill me. Um, <laughs> but uh, picking the job that I picked uh, was probably far way worse um, than infantry at the time. Um, so when you when you went into it, did you have a choice of what area you wanted to go into? Yeah, I, I looked at combat engineer, but the description for combat engineer when I came in was building fortifications and clearing minefields. As a kid, I liked building things and I thought, hey, why don't I try that out? But when the Iraq war happened, that job description changed because that description before was mainly for World War II and Vietnam soldiers. When IEDs yeah. were coming out, uh, the military decided to use combat engineers because we knew what explosives look like, uh, different types. Um, so we were best suited to find the IEDs. Oh, cool. Um, I, there must be a, so much training and how they, well, they must continue try to hide them, right? We're jumping the gun here a little bit, but um, it's interesting because uh, they must have, always continued to try to trick you, didn't they? Change it up a bit? Yeah, also, we were also called breachers. So one of our other jobs was able to get into things. So we were trained to build certain explosives to breach obstacles. Um, so we kind of knew what to look for. Uh, that was one of the main trainings, but yeah, trying to trick us, the different things that they would use to build these IEDs were somewhat impressive and the ingenuity behind it was a little bit scary. Um, mm -hmm. We would find IEDs with cell phones, uh, beepers, um, garage door openers. We would even oh, wow. see uh, pressure wires. So there would be Christmas lights maybe across the road 
which would look out of place and um, uh, became more evolved with EFPs, which were lasers that were used to detect heat. So anything that went by it, such as our vehicles, would set off IEDs. Um, how they disguise these things were quite incredible. There would be chunks taken out of the curb. So they would take a chunk of the curb out, mold the IED into the curb and place it back the, into it. Um, dead dogs would even be used to hide IEDs. Um, in Iraq, there's oh. a lot of trash piles. Um, so they would hide these trash pile, uh, hide these IEDs in the trash piles. But we were so used to being out there that we would actually memorize these trash piles. So if anything was out of place, we would actually look into it. And nine times out of 10, there would be something there. Um, so from where the story started, you joined and you thought, Hey, as, uh, as, a you know, a guy who came out of school, basically, that sounds like fun, I guess, is what your thought was. So where did you train? in United States at one of the military bases? I did my basic training in AIT in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Um, since I'm from Chicago, it's not too far away. It's maybe like a 45 minute plane ride. Um, but that's, I spent 16 weeks there. And um, basic training was a little rough for me because during college I get, gained a lot of weight. So I'm, I'm tall, I'm like 6'3", six, 6'4", six, but I was about almost 280 pounds. So I was almost about 100 pounds from the standards of the military. But during basic training, those 16 weeks, I ended up losing about 70 pounds. Yeah, because they work you hard. Yeah. And um, just I built more confidence being in basic training. And then um, they gave me my decision to join a duty station. So one of them was I picked Germany and ended up in Schweinfurt, Germany. Which everybody is near Frankfurt. So I, I did my time in Germany as well. Um, I, I was just south of Frankfurt, um, but used to go to the army base uh, a lot, the American army base quite a bit. Um, theirs was always bigger and better than ours. <laughs> um, Canadians never really had too much. Uh, we were always the helpers to the Americans. We were never really the even now, you know, what do we have? One Navy ship and a few planes? I don't know. <laughs> but we don't have much compared to what you guys have. Um, so it took you over to Germany for more training, I assume. You were over there for twice or once? Yeah, so I ended up in Schweinfurt um, fall of 05. Um, the unit was just forming and it was one of the last combat engineer battalions so the battalions made up maybe about 500 soldiers usually combat engineers are distributed between squads to infantry units but we were one of the very last combat engineer units so a lot of soldiers from bamberg uh, wordsburg um, i think nuremberg as well and us new recruits coming in from the states all came to Schweinfurt uh, because uh, that's what they were gearing up for for our deployment. But we kept on getting pushed back from our deployments, and it was getting a little bit weird. But um, there's reasons behind that that we found out later on. 
Mm. Um, and did you do the the training before you went to Iraq then to in Germany for preparation? So yeah, the big training base in there is Hohenfelds and Greffenwehr. Um, now it's a big hub for U.S. installations, but yeah, the Greffenwehr and Hohenfelds are up in the mountains. So it was a little bit nerve-wracking because every time we would go train, it'd be in the middle of winter. So it's negative 10 degrees and we're training to be in an environment that's 100 plus degrees. Um, so it was kind of hard to replicate what we would do. Mm -hmm. We made best of what we had. How about the training with keeping up with the the electrical part of what they could keep doing with these explosives? Did, did that assist you in Germany with trying to train for that part? Um, yes and no. Um, a lot of IEDs that we would practice with were from artillery shell rounds or mortar rounds, but the ingenuity behind it all, I mean, there was even chlorine bombs, um, propane tank bombs, and uh, it wasn't until we got to Kuwait we did a, uh, some training and we were actually trained by English and Canadian soldiers um, with the equipment that we were going to have to use uh, during our deployments. So the Canadians do know something. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what about, so you went from Germany with the training and then you, did you come back to United States and then go to Iraq or did you go right from Germany to Iraq? I was, I was a brand new private, so I didn't have the time to go back. Um, but uh, since we got delayed more and more, there was a time period where I was able to go back for maybe about a week and a half before the deployment because we didn't end up deploying, deploying until um, almost the end of summer, beginning of fall of 07, or no, sorry, oh. of 06, um, which... Uh, down the road, we found out that it was more of kind of a power uh, power deployment. The deployment would put, I guess, more accolades under higher leadership's belts. So they were kind of forcing the deployment, um, which pushed the training. And a lot of units weren't prepared. My first deployment, um, it was named the most deadliest deployment from... Uh, any European unit. Um, oh. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a little controversial thing with it all about I explain in my book that it was more of power plays than um, reasoning. Reasoning, yeah. Um, so you flew over to Iraq, um, I guess, and you arrived. Did you go somewhere else like did you have a couple stops before you arrived in iraq no my uh duty station was baghdad my first deployment so baghdad has uh the large uh largest base that's there that's where the baghdad airport is um and um where the main hub of also iraqi troops were as well that would train Oh, okay. So, um, 
did you go with their same training group that you were with in Germany to there, the same brothers that you worked with them? Yes and no. That was another thing that kind of happened with us was that we did uh, field rotations are usually about 60 days. So you train with these soldiers 60 days nonstop. You sleep in the same quarters, everything. Um, and maybe a week or two before we left for Baghdad, the unit decided to move soldiers around. So the whole 60 days was almost kind of a waste about training with other mm -hmm. guys, knowing how guys work, uh, what are guys' specific jobs. That really all went out the window, and a lot of us were really upset with that. And it was just another uh, derail in the deployment. Right. It's like having a team. When you're training with them, why wouldn't you bring the team to go win, right? Yeah. It makes sense instead of breaking them up. And But um, so you arrived in Baghdad. And what happened from that point? Um, we got attached to a unit that was there for the year. And so what would happen is that we would take over their vehicles. Um, being combat engineers, we were in these specialized vehicles uh, called RG-31s. They were uh, South African vehicles that were a little bit more bomb resistant. They had V-shaped hulls that would kind of deteriorate, uh, deflect shrapnel, things like that. Um, but our main vehicle was called a Buffalo. I actually have a miniature model of it. So. Oh, cool. Oh, okay. So it's like a kind of like a big Jeep or... No, this this, uh, this vehicle is about, um, about 20 to 30 feet high and about 50 feet long. So, I mean, on the back, you see there's a ladder. You actually have to climb into this vehicle. So this vehicle was a lot more bomb resistant. And our main weapon as combat engineers is this crane that we have on the front. And this crane could hold maybe about 200 to 250 pounds. So if we ever found anything that was buried or we had to move stuff on the road, we would use this crane to move things around and make a decision on if it's actually an IED or not. This was our main weapon, and this is what um, a lot of these surgeons would try to break down before anything else. Oh, I see. So it's kind of like the outside of a tank because it's kind of more bomb resistant than to... And I'm getting a little bit ahead as my second deployment came, they developed more armor for these vehicles and um, to help protect them more. Well, that must be kind of cool though. <laughs> uh, yeah, but we, we've seen a lot of um, damage that happened to these vehicles with larger explosives. So uh, Given that, that part's not so cool. <laughs> that they said that they were bomb resistant. Um, most of the time it wasn't. Oh. We, so that's why we ended up losing a, a couple soldiers in my first deployment. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, so going back to your first deployment to Iraq, did you call the new guys anything? Because I know my dad used to. He did his time in Egypt, and he was part of the... Um, United Nations mm -hmm. section. And they used to have a name for the newbies that came to Iraq. Did you guys have a name for newbies? 
Um, there's different names. Uh, a lot of them are a lot of vulgar names. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's um, they would if there was new guys that actually came in while we were deployed, they would get most of the crap details or um, had to put in the most work because they were fresh. So uh, kind of like when you go to a team, the new the newbies get all the shit jobs, I guess, basically. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you landed in Baghdad. Um, this must have been all very, very eye-opening for you because you you were really new at this. What what was your feeling? When we land, the first is when we landed in Kuwait, and it was the middle of the night, and they opened up the doors to the plane, and nothing but sand, and that heat just hits you like instantly. Everything was like a it was almost like, like 100 a, degrees in the middle of the night. Um, oh, like, like a furnace. Yeah. <laughs> and um, But it wasn't so bad. It wasn't humid. It's just the heat of it all was just the worst part of it. So, I mean, yeah, working in those conditions are a little bit rough, and you're hoping that the AC is working that day. Yeah. Well, you have a lot of um, uniform stuff on, too. So, mm -hmm. um, Although they always say it's better, but I don't know how because you're so hot underneath it when it's so hot out, but me being a bigger guy, I was mostly the gunners for a lot of our vehicles. So I would be on top of the vehicle with uh, 50 cal or any other type of weaponry that we had. Um, only half my body's inside. So I'm half my body's <laughs> cold and the other half is hot. Um, but they were trying to protect gunners a lot more and some of it got kind of ridiculous. They wanted us to put in bomb resistant suits and me being me, I, I volunteered. They put me in this bomb suit and they tried to put me in a gun hatch of a regular Humvee and I couldn't even get into it because it was just so bulky and me being bigger, it was uh, a lot worse. And um, so during both of my deployments, they kind of made us wear certain things. We had to wear more Kevlar pads on our shoulders. They were trying to make us wear um, visors like visor shields um, I know on my second deployment I had to wear a harness so I wore this huge body harness that would attach to the floor of the vehicle so just a lot of times these higher explosives would go off and sometimes the gunners would be shot out of the hatch and they would end up falling 20 feet up in the air and hitting the ground so this harness was designed to keep me inside of the vehicle Oh. That was more, I never really liked the harness. I, I still have some um, psychological issues with that about things being around my neck, um, being close. I mean, I can't wear um, shirt and ties because then I start uh, sweating and hyperventilating. But for the last year and a half, I'm slowly getting out of those things. Yeah, because it would kind of feel confined and claustrophobic kind of right and, and, yeah i would have to wear a neck guard um with my body armor and then having that harness would just keep everything tight and having my helmet and everything it just a lot of it just was really uncomfortable you need to be a robot in those cases i guess mm -hmm. that's yeah. what they wanted you to be does it actually work was it ever tested does uh, it it would restrict a lot of movements because I would, I would be attached. So it, it's kind of like a seatbelt. 
So yeah. if you're in an accident, it tightens up. So you really can't move. So if you really do want to move all of a sudden, you might like strain yourself a little bit in the legs. I did that a lot trying to get up, but I think it would be an impact and I get like pains in my legs all of a sudden just because of that pullback. Right. So for everybody, um, I did write what a gunner is. Um, where do I have it now? Is responsible to surveillance, target acquisition, and direct fire to engage the enemy. Is that right? Did I get it right? Pretty good. Okay. Um, so what? Uh, were you ever in tanks? Did you guys ever have to do the tank thing? We... As I said before, we were the only one of the last combat engineer units. Um, another unit that was in the area was from Fort Hood, and they actually had combat engineers attached to their infantry unit. Um, they weren't really doing much with them, so they came over and helped us out, and they did have Bradley tanks, so they would take, um, take them out on their missions. Um, our schedule was basically... Uh, morning mission, afternoon mission, and a night mission. So it's three units. And every two weeks, we would rotate days, afternoons, and nights. And we would do these missions six days a week. So once a day for maybe up to eight to 12 hours a day. And we would actually be going five miles an hour down the road, looking out the window, trying to find these IEDs. Um, a lot of units knew who we were just by our vehicles alone, but how slow we were going. And most of the time we would come across units that would come behind us and they realize who we are and they would stay behind us as long as they could to wherever they were going because they knew that we were the ones that were finding the IEDs and that they would be safe. Was there regular people around? Like regular Iraqis and... Oh, yeah. In Baghdad, yeah. So, I mean, it's they have the, their main centers and some suburbs and things like that. But yeah, there was constantly people around. But you don't know where the bombs are going to be, do you? No, we don't. <laughs> so even if you're in town, you don't know if you're set up or not. There are subtle signs um, that we would notice um, if the area was just completely flooded with people we knew that there was a very slim chance that there would be an IED. Sometimes we'd be going down a certain road and you notice that the people are gone or there's no cars driving anywhere. Then you kind of know that the neighborhood knows that there's something there and that we have to be more vigilant. Um, so tell us about, did you ever see a lot? Uh, my, I know my dad used to come home and say there was lots of kids in the red in the middle of the road street or um, waving them down and asking them for money and food. And did you ever come across stuff like that? In Baghdad, yeah, there's kids everywhere. So a lot of them asking for candy. So some of us would have bags of candy and we'd throw some out for them. Um, sometimes people would ask for water. Um, we'd throw, we'd always go around with cases of water just in case we ever got stranded anywhere. Sometimes we'd throw them out. Um, but I mean, a lot of the times we were out so often that we would recognize certain people because we would see them every day. So, um, 
we never really developed relationships with them, but we knew that it was more kind of a safer area or we knew what was going on. Right, because you're more familiar with it. What was the, is there a worse time, morning, noon, or night? Is there a scarier time to do that shift? Nighttime is most the most active. That's when they're usually going out and placing these IEDs. Um, but the real danger is actually after we leave an area. So the roads have certain codes. So green is the road is completely safe. Um, the road is uh, red, which is it's still danger, but not so dangerous. And then there's black, where only certain units could go on black roads, and we were one of the units um, uh. that could go on black roads because we had the best equipment. So when we're going down the road, the road does turn green, but only after a hundred yards, then it turns back to red. So a lot of times after we would pass a certain area that's when they would place the IEDs because we were gone and they think that we're not going to come back. So this is going to be the perfect time to place something. That's what would usually happen. Oh, they're tricky, aren't they? So what was your experience when you um, did, did you ever have to, when you found the explosive, anything ever happen with your guys? Like, um, yeah. do you stay in the vehicle? Do you get out? No, we stay in. Um, so if we ever came across everything, we would have to make sure the area is safe, make sure no one goes near them. And what we would have to do would be call the EOD units. So they're the disposal units. Um, so they would come out and depending on where we were at, if we we're far from the base, sometimes it'd take them an hour, two hours just to get to us. So as the deployment was going on, we were finding more and more IEDs and we requested that these EOD units come on mission with us. And a lot of them, they were really against it because they didn't even want to be out there. But I mean, well, we're going to call you out here anyways, so might as well come with us and get it over with. Um, we never went more than two days without finding something. Our unit alone found 126 IEDs, and that's not including the ones that were fake or the one that had blown up on us. Wow. So when did you find the one that blew up on you guys in your uh, first deployment to Iraq or your second? Uh, my, our first. So it was happening so often that um, me, myself, I've been blown up twice, but a lot of my fellow soldiers have been blown up three, four times. And we've um, lost four soldiers, my first deployment, and then also a couple of others that were severely injured that, couldn't continue mission. Oh, that's so awful, isn't it? Um, so what was that like? What was your first experience of what happened that you guys got blown up? It's more of a, like, did that really happen type of thing? Because then you see the flash and then you hear the boom like a second later. So we were so used to it that when we saw the flash, we were able to think fast enough that we like, oh shit. And then the boom comes. Um, a lot of times it would maybe damage our vehicle a little bit and we would continue mission. Um, 
sometimes we would have to assess it a little bit more because sometimes the vehicle got damaged and we have to tow the vehicle back. Our area was so, uh, was such a hot spot that our unit actually had a two, two blow up policy. So if we got blown up uh, on mission and we had, and we were fine, we continue mission. If we blew up and our vehicle was broken, we had to bring the vehicle back and then go back out right away. Oh no. Time, but during that time, it's maybe like two hours. So you add two hours on top of the mission. So if we got blown up that second time, then they're saying, okay, you could cancel the mission, you could come back. You don't have to go the rest of your route. But right. it's, it's, um, it was just so bad, my first deployment. That's when also Bush had his, uh, his surge. So he brought in maybe like 10, 20,000 new troops in. Cause, and we, we felt it too. I mean, we, we had to be out there more often because there was units moving around more and more. And it just got real busy. Oh, geez. Um, what were, th were the tires like tanks then? Or like you can't, because otherwise the tire would normally blow up as well, right? No, the tanks have the the tracks, uh, so yeah. I mean, I mean th this this tire alone maybe comes up to my comes up to my chest, and I'm six foot four. So, I mean, there there's huge tires and they weigh a, weigh a ton too. So, I mean, it's it's heavy. Yeah, I remember as a kid getting we got to ride in one every summer. That was our summer treat. Uh, we got to use a t get in a tank or something. Oh, hold on one sec. Um, I'm gonna fix the window here. Too much noise out there. <laughs> All right, so. Um, we only got the fun part of riding in one. We didn't have to worry about bombs or anything. So when you heard it, did you, you didn't see it first, obviously, but sometimes you did pick up on it and did you use laser and, and everything like that to, to find them? So the head of the convoy would be the most, the, the vehicle that was ahead of the convoy would, would be most vigilant. So if they saw something suspicious, then we would stop. Um, we would have the buffalo I showed you earlier would come up, look at it. Um, if it was nothing, then we would continue mission. If it was something, then we would have to call it in. Even if it was fake, we couldn't just say, we know it's fake. Um, we can't continue. We have to have the EOD guys come out and check it, dispose of fake ID. But most of the times when these fake IEDs would be put out, they would be blatantly obvious. So they'd just be in the middle of the road. But the main reason for that was that most of the time we were being videotaped. Um, later on, we would we got a, uh, an infantry unit came up to us and said, hey, we, we found a cache and we found a lot of videos of your unit. So that raises the hairs on your back knowing that people are watching you. But at the same time, we knew that we were actually making a difference and making an impact on the whole situation. Mm -hmm. Did, did, um, did, what was I going to say? Um, when you first got bombed and you were all in the vehicle, what happened to you? What did you 
feel like because in the blink of an eye basically that's what happens <laughs> it, like you said it goes you see the flash and then you hear the you you only have a second to think not uh, even the first time i've been was blown up um i didn't even notice it happened i uh, i was in the back of the vehicle i was in my, my lieutenant's vehicle so i was monitoring a lot of the computers that were going on and all of a sudden I ended up on the floor and felt dust in my lungs and I was coughing and I just really did not realize what happened. And then all of a sudden I'm like, Oh crap, we just got hit. And it was us. Um, my first reaction was to go to the front of the vehicle because check on everybody. Cause <laughs> I couldn't really see anything because of all the dust and everything. Grabbing, grabbing the gunner driver, my LTs, like everyone's okay. He's like, yeah, we're fine. Um, but a lot of times what would happen was every we, when we get blown up, so for some reason the comms, the communications in that vehicle would go down. So other vehicles that were trying to get in contact with us, couldn't. We couldn't, we couldn't they couldn't hear us. It was what happened was most of the time. So then we go through our procedures of uh, thinking mass casualty because no one is answering. Um, so all, all we see is the vehicles moving along the windows. They're trying to look in. Um, I try to get to the back of the vehicle um, because actually for those RGs, the only way in and out was the back door. Uh, so I had to open up the back door, try to give the thumbs up best I could that were good. Um, but a lot of the times when uh, we did get blown up and we didn't have any injuries, it was always the guys um, that would see see that, and then all of a sudden they think, okay, we better stop, and all of a sudden it blows up, and that is they think like I should have called out sooner. Is like, and you get kind of upset with yourselves. Um, I I would say this is like the sick part of it all is that we we actually laugh about it afterwards, even though it's a serious situation, but that's the only way that we can psychologically get through it. If we laugh about it later, right? that's the only way we're able to get through it, not to dwell on it. And it's, it's a little sickening, but that's what we had to do. Well, yeah, I guess it's your life. So it's kind of like a video game or something like playing a video game and, Oh, that got me. And you laugh about it and move on, I guess, right? Yeah, that's the best you could do. And how was the first experience for you? Did she, you came out okay and everybody was all right in the vehicle? Everyone's all right. Um, as I was talking about the two blow up, blown up policy, our vehicle was down, so we had to, we had to go back and get a new vehicle. Um, when we got back to our motor pool, our medic was checking us out. He said that you want to go, you want to go to uh, the CCP, so that's the casualty collection point or the hospital. And we we're like, no, it's like I'm fine. I might just got the wind knocked out of me a little bit because the idea is if you actually get injured and you go to the CCP uh, to be treated, you're, you're actually automatically awarded a purple heart. So the purple heart is for getting injured in wartime. And a lot of guys of us in the vehicle, we did not want to do that. We're not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to go to the CCP for a headache 
when there's other guys losing their lives or limbs or anything like that. Right. Um, so I, I turned that I turned that down along with the others. Um, what was so <laughs> what was so interesting about that night was is that um, we didn't have any more any any more RGs. So the LT had to go in a Humvee, and I was kind of the odd man out because I would be kind of useless. So I told my LT says you could go back you could go back to your room and um, and just chill out and wait for us to come back. I was like, I told him, you know what, sir, I can't do that because if I do that, then the next mission I can't go back out. So I said, I'll go in the Buffalo. There's an extra chair in the Buffalo. I'll go in there. He says, all right, go ahead. <laughs> I must have been on edge the entire night just sitting in that Buffalo because we would, we would find another IED later that night, and I actually got up out of my seat and ran to the back of the vehicle trying to get away from it. And the guys were like, what are you doing? Where are you going? I was like, I, I just had this thing where I had to get away. It was just the reflex. Um, but, yeah, it's just. Was, was it because you weren't used to that vehicle, do you think? that's? It was, I, I mean, I just got blown up maybe a couple hours earlier. I didn't want to get blown up again. So it was me yeah. running away from the situation. I don't, it, it was like a little blackout moment that I had. Yeah. It was, it was a little bit funny, but, I mean. At the same time, it's something that's psychological Scary. in my head. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that that the rest of the night I was kind of like sitting in the chair, just a little nervous. But I knew I had to be out there because if I didn't go back out there, I would have been even a worse wreck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you'd be wondering because they are your family, aren't they? Really? Yeah. When you're there. Um, did what was your was did both of those bombs that hit you um were they in the first deployment or was that in your second that was my my first deployment um during our first deployment we had a lot of um incidences where we did lose soldiers we lost them on two separate times one actually happened on christmas day of 06 um it's still a little bit upsetting now from a lot of us because we were actually protesting against it. Why are we going out on Christmas day? No, yeah. no other units in the area were actually out that night and they were telling us that we had to go out there. So we were kind of, well, what's the point of going out there if there's no gonna, not going to be anybody there. Right. But they insisted we had to go. And so we went, um, that night we ended up getting hit by an EFP that I told earlier. So it's the EFP is a laser that detects heat. And in these EFPs, there's like these copper round, copper cylinders that are maybe about 12 inches in diameter. And depending on how they make it, they could be between three, four. We've seen some up to 12, but this one ended up being three and it hit our front vehicle. And um, we lost uh, our gunner. Uh, the driver and um, the TC. So the guy that was in the front of the vehicle, another soldier was in there. He ended up getting severely wounded. He ended up losing vision in his eye and um, a lot of shrapnel in the arms and legs. But mm -hmm. that was kind of the first, um, like, this is real type of thing. Hearing that, hearing over the radio, the KIA, one KIA was really surreal and it was just, it hit you. And 
I'll never forget that, that hearing that over the radio. And that night I was in my LT's vehicle. So I heard a lot of the chatter between us and the other units we were trying to get to help us. Um, unfortunately, we were actually kind of left out there that night. Um, a lot of things happened that I explained in my book. A lot of things just kept happening that was getting wrong, um, got the situation worse and worse. Um, and we were calling for help and no one was helping us. We were pretty much stranded out there for, Jesus, maybe about eight hours by ourselves. Wow. Trying to get people to come and help us. Um, people either just ignored us or they made up an excuse why they couldn't come. We were fortunate enough to have a, uh, have a, an aviation unit come out and help us with security because I was also a gunner and we only had another vehicle that had a gun on it. So me and the other gunner, we have to put 180 degree security. So he's got one side, I got the other. So, and even being at night, it was just draining that just having to wait there. And it's like being on guard then is that being on guard, right? making sure no one comes, but this is at yeah. night and there's hardly any street lights. Um, the vehicle that ended up getting hit ended up catching on fire. Uh, we ran out of fire extinguishers. We couldn't put out the fire. So for those eight hours, we actually had to watch this vehicle burn with some of our brothers inside of it. Oh, and gosh. The one thing that I will never forget, and it took me so long to actually say this, was the smell. Mm -hmm. Actually, the smell of human flesh burning yeah and just smelling that death uh, still hasn't left me to this day and it's just something that i couldn't say for maybe about 10 years yeah and writing it in the book all the emotions i had it just um, lifted all that pressure mm -hmm. it i guess when you talk about it it's um it helps to relieve that but you can't get that vision and smell out of your mind. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the powder dust, I guess, and, and the that, that smell comes from that burning um, must be horrible. Uh, that, that's so, a, Yeah, so at the same time, so we used 50 cal machine guns. The rounds are very large, and there was a lot of them inside that vehicle. So we would have to take cover because the 50 cal rounds were going off because it was so hot. So you wow. went off in the vehicles, making sure that we don't get hit. And it was just, um, it's just like, you can't win. No, it wasn't until early on the next morning. Um, our first Sergeant decided to save, fuck this. He actually went and knocked on people's doors saying, come with me. We're going to go get them. And um, they finally came out that morning. But the damage was so severe to that vehicle that they needed a lot of equipment to put it on a flatbed. So we were actually there for maybe like another hour and a half of them trying to recover. And it, we were probably one of the, the farthest out there. We were in um, northeast Baghdad. So, I mean, it was a long trek and going five miles an hour just to get back might have been another hour, hour and a half. 
Yeah. And, um, coming in, it was just the just it was just completely drained. I mean, we really couldn't say anything to each other. All we could do was just look at each other. And they wanted us to go in and give our reports. Um, they had all the chaplains there. Uh, it was just they wanted us to read to give our accounts, write it down, and everything. And it was just real draining. And <laughs> the the thing that set us off the most was um, our unit told us that we have to go back out there that night, that same day, go back to where it happened, and at that point we were just we just kind of said no we're not doing that and fought against it and they said all right we'll give you we'll give you a day rest so they gave us a day rest oh, but they said the next day you have to go back to that spot and uh what was that purpose because there's going to be more they, explosives they, they figured there'd be more and they wanted us to see in the daytime what it looked like and leaving the gate that day i don't think my, my asshole was so puckered up that it was actually hurting me. It was just, I didn't even want to go back out there because just going through that experience again was just horrifying. Your whole body just like shuts down. Yeah. Um, did, what do you think hit that truck? Was it something thrown at it or was it actually that the truck went over it? It was an EFP. So it was, th it was three copper cylinders, about 12 inches in diameter. One ended up going through the gas tank, which ended up starting the fire. Um, another one went through the side, and I believe another one went through um, um, through the side of where the passenger and driver were. So it ended up hitting the passenger, went through him, and killed the driver instantly. Um, and... Uh, that's what we assessed from it. Um, I see. Also, during that night when we were pulling security, um, I had my night vision. So I was uh, surveilling the buildings and found these two big bright lights on top of one of the buildings. And I was like, that's a little weird. So I take my thermals off. There's actually no lights. So I put my thermals back on, but I still still see these two big bright lights. And I'm wondering what the heck are these bright lights? All of a sudden, these lights stand up and there's two people. What they were doing, they were leaning over the edge and they were pulling the wire from the IED to get rid of the evidence. So I told my LT, they're two combatants, so I shot the two combatants. Um, in my mind, I know I got them, but things were happening that night where... Um, one of the infantry units went to the wrong building and they said they never found anything. So it was never really confirmed on if they, if I got them or not, but I know in my heart that I know I got them. Um, the What's that like shooting somebody like that? It must feel they, kind they, of good in a way. It did relieve me in some way. Um, I don't have any regrets from that night and I will never have any regrets because I know what I did. And so I engaged the enemy. Um, if you asked me that question before the military, I might have a different answer, but being in, it's something that, I mean, we were trained to do. So 
yeah it was really just second nature at the time um especially after having hurt some of your guys you're yeah you're just like i'm gonna get them <laughs> and um but what troubled me most was is that a lot of the families of the soldiers that that passed never actually really knew what happened that night they were told snippets i was under the impression that they actually got a re whole report of what happened because we had to actually write the reports i was told that they never got any of that they just said maybe like a brief description of what happened and it was cause of death by um, ied strike so they never really knew what happened which kind of made me more upset and was one of the reasons why i wanted to write it um even though i gave my account of what happened and they didn't want to say the truth. Well, I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to tell you what happened. Mm -hmm. You like it or not, but as I said, you're going to have to answer for something, a lie that you might have told. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Um, so you're, would Afghanistan be kind of the same similar story as where you were? Afghanistan would be a little bit more different. I mean, there are cities, but a lot of what was going on was in the middle of nowhere so a lot of the ieds would be deep buried ieds so they would be buried deep under the ground we rarely had that because we were actually on concrete streets there might be an occasion where there might be one that they hide underneath a sewer and hide it underneath we've only had a couple occasions where that happened it was never really happened to us but it did happen to some other units did they ever hide something like explosives around women to draw to draw we them never, we never came across anything like that um we were always afraid as i said that they would put ieds and and dead dogs mm -hmm. and it was kind of obvious that there was something in them because you got this dog that's inflamed um but we were always afraid um they would put ieds under dead people i mean there would be a lot of occasions where we would come across civilians that were lying in the road that were killed by insurgents or, or just because they talked said something or something you never know i guess yeah that and a lot of times we would come across kids um i know an incident we came across a schoolyard um a sniper ended up shooting a kid in the in the playground area before school and all the kids were standing around um, one of the rules was, is that U.S. forces weren't allowed to touch, um, lack of a better word, dead Iraqis. It was considered in the Muslim, uh, religion that if a non-Muslim touched a dead Muslim, it was considered desecrating the body. So the best we could do was report it and have the authorities come, but sometimes these bodies would be left there for maybe days. I mean, we came across one that was there for maybe about a week and a half, just laying there because they were too afraid to pick him up because what was happening was if they were coming, there would be a sniper there that would shoot the people that would help. It was another right. way of desecrating the body being in the sun for a week and a half. So, I mean, that was a little, just, that was a little thing that I really was against because I mean, 
I know it might be, you think it's desecrating, but really, do you want your family member laying in the streets for days? Yeah. I mean, I'm, just the oversight, maybe you could look over that, but I mean, that's what it was. But you don't know if they have another plan yeah. around it, right? So sometimes, sometimes we would have to use that crane to move them because we never knew if there was an actual ID or maybe they put grenades or little small yeah. underneath them. So a lot of the times we had to make that hard decision to move them with the crane. And we, you would see it from the people, they would get pushback because we're moving the body and like, well, I mean, that's it's, it's something that we have to do. I mean, as bad as it looks, something we had to, to keep so, us safe and to keep civilians safe as well. Right. And did you see women getting hurt too then? Doesn't, I guess. Uh, not personally. I know there was a house, there was one house that was next to the base and we would always honk the horn because the house was filled with women and they would always come out and say hi because we would see them every day. Um, later down the road, we heard that um, insurgents went in there and blew the house up. Um, we weren't sure if the women were in there. Um, there was also another thing. There was a lot of schools where women, like high school age girls and college too, were going to the schools. Um, they would uh, have a lot of security outside the schools, but then they would try to get in the schools and um, blow them up or because you saw more and more of the women almost kind of wearing Western wear. So like skirts and a blouse and they would have their hijab on. But I mean, it was more Western wear than just having the whole cloth outfit on. Yeah. So a lot of people were, or extremists were more worried, were worried about that. And, but I mean, that's, that's a civil war between them. Um, it really does have nothing to do with us, but I mean, I mean, we're all living in the same area, so we're all affected by it. Right. Um, so you didn't go anywhere else after your second deployment, you came back to United States. After my first deployment, we came back to Germany. Um, coming back was, uh, was, uh, was a real rough ride. It was a lot of drinking and um, trying to deal with another incident we had where we lost another soldier, which was a good friend of mine. Um, but the best we could do was just remember them, remember the stories and all the good times that we could have. But um, I had to go through a lot of medical because me engaging the enemy with my weapon, um, being in these explosions and everything it checked a lot of boxes where they forced me to go uh, see a psychologist or um, there's a few funny stories that how they went through this process that was just ridiculous uh, they, they, they they couldn't make it more obvious that like we like there was something wrong with us or something it was, it was just nuts and um, I was, at that point you're wondering who's crazy <laughs> yeah, you wonder, you wonder, yeah, I wonder who is, and I mean, I, I, I still have counseling statements that I, that I was actually forced to go see the psychologist, but what I was seeing was, um, guys were going and they would get medication, but they weren't themselves. They were yeah. 
just shells of themselves. And I told myself, I never want to be like that. I can never just be there, just sit there and just feel nothing. So I refused a lot of medication and decided to go on my own, which was good and bad. But um, when I finally came home after it all, it uh, took me a while to recover. But um, being from that time frame, from my first deployment to my second deployment, I had a lot of things happen to me while I was um, in my unit. Uh, I got switched jobs. I was being a little bit more rebellious because I didn't like what was happening to the military. Um, when Obama took over, and a lot of things changed in the military. I mean, I mean, there, there was high standards to get in. I mean, I'm not going to say I'm the super soldier, but uh, I had my flaws too, but I got in. But when Obama took over, it was more, they were actually letting guys in with lower requirements. Um, and it really showed with the new guys that we ended up getting. A lot of them were just, I don't know, they just didn't really fit in the whole vibe of the military and a lot of problems happened. They just needed numbers, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a number to get more bodies in the seats. But um, my second deployment wasn't as harsh as my first. I think my second deployment, we only found a few IEDs. We were in a town called Hilla. Um, it's maybe about an hour south of Baghdad. Hilla is more famous where Saddam Hussein had his mass graves. Um, so the town was really decimated. And when we were there, they were really trying to rebuild it, um, get things back to normal. So that must have felt a lot better to <laughs> not be in such a, not like your first deployment where it was pretty, I mean, you hardly want to go back after your first time. I felt more comfortable because myself and the guy, some of the guys I served with were in leadership positions and we felt more comfortable that we, we knew that we could get through it. We could teach the new guys how to properly do it. We've been through it before and we could guide them through it. That made me feel a lot more comfortable. Um, but at the time, I, w I was thinking to myself, I'm, this is my last deployment. I'm not going to be re-enlisting again or coming back. I'll, right. I told myself, I'm going to do my deployment um, to the best of my ability. I'm not going to slack off and say, hey, this is my last thing. I'm just going to do my job and keep everyone safe. That was my number one thing that I wanted to do. Um, so I ended up doing my deployment and then um, 2010 I uh, decided to leave and I came back to the States. And where did you land? Back in your same base again? Yeah, back in Germany. Um, there was new leadership going on in Germany. A lot of the units were being moved to Grafenbeer. Is, uh, now Grafenbeer is the main hub for all the units that was there because now the base that I was at was sold back to the Germans. Um, so all the U.S. forces are now in Grafenbeer and Hohensfelds right now. So they were making that transition to move everybody there. But uh, I stayed in Schweinfurt because I was ETSing out. And did you have a choice of where to come back to in the States? Uh, no, I, I officially left the military. I came back home here to Chicago. Um, 
it was a it was a little bit rough. Um, uh, I had a plan in place, um, but I had a lot of hearing loss. So jobs that I was lined up for, I got denied. I want I ch- wanted to join the Chicago Police Department. I got denied because of hearing. I tried to join TSA. Again, I got denied for hearing. So <laughs> the plans that I had. Uh, <laughs> kind of backfired on me and I was kind of like oh my god what am I going to do now um so I I did some odd jobs and you know, it says you know what I got I got my my GI bill I'll go back to school uh, I decided I got my four-year degree in business administration um military paid for all of it so I really didn't have to worry about that um and uh I ended up uh, getting a job in property management, but during those ten years, I did struggle a lot um, with losing losing my brothers. So I tried to find certain things that to cope with it. So one of the things I did is I took up fish keeping. I kept up. I kept marine um, saltwater tanks. Um, it's cool. a hobby, but it kept my mind off of everything else. Um, and it was rewarding too. Right? I get to see my fish all the time. I mean, I, 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 I even build my own tanks. Oh, wow. Scratch. So, I mean, I, I built myself uh, like a 500, 600 gallon pond by my, uh, to get bigger fish. Um, it was just, so, just something to keep my mind off of what I had to do. Um, but in December of 19, I actually had my, final breakdown in my kitchen all the emotions that i had just came flowing out of me and i felt i felt so much better and over the next month i was just healing i was um feeling better about myself because i wasn't holding that stuff in i decided you know what hey how about i make some videos on what i went through mm-hmm me being, I'm not so social media savvy, so I wasn't sure how I was get those videos out there. Um, and then the pandemic hit, and I says, you know what? How about I just start writing? So I just started writing more, and the more I was writing, the better I felt. I didn't have to have all that um, anxiety and pressure in me anymore. I was putting it on paper and leaving it there. And after I finished the book, I just felt so relieved that, I did not have to keep it in anymore. It's all on paper. And that's why I decided, you know what? Hey, I'm, I'm just going to publish. One talk about it. Yeah. Write about it and talk about it. Good for you. That's amazing. And because PTSD and grief and like you had it all, all wrapped up in one, all in you. <laughs> yeah, I know when I left the military in 2010, it was maybe 20 soldiers a day were taking their lives. And maybe about five years later, it was 21. And now this year, it's going up to 22 now. So oh, really? The number is going up. And now I'm seeing a lot more of we have to do something. That's why I like to do these things to get that awareness out more because the number is going up. Um, and it's it's heartbreaking. And I know there's a lot of soldiers out there that are struggling. Yeah. That's, that's the thing where... I try to talk about is like you have to have a, if you're going to leave the military you have to have that plan and if you don't have that plan that's when things really go downhill 
and I was fortunate enough to recover from my plan, but a lot of soldiers are less fortunate. Well, they don't even think of a plan to start with, so. No. They, they um, just I'm, I'm going to get out and I'll be free of this, but then when they come back, they're like, oh, what the hell am I going to do, you know? So it's it's rough. It's like when people, well, it's not really like when people retire, but sort of because they think, oh, they, they can finally go and do this and they can go do that and they can travel. and But then that kind of gets sick after six months and then they're lost to know what to do. So, yeah, it, do they have a very good system for when you get out to what they can help you do? Uh, <laughs> what I experienced was not really. Um, after I left in 2010, I was an inactive reserve. So I was in the military for maybe about three years after that. But technically, I wasn't. I, was, I would have to report like once a year saying, hey, I'm here. Um, so... Um, the resources that they were giving, it was just maybe like a pamphlet to say, hey, call this number. And sometimes you never even get through or they tell you, hey, just go to the VA hospital and you kind of wait six, seven months for an appointment because they're all backed up. Yeah. And uh, resource centers are far in between. Um, I When I was back at college, I was going through the library and I came across a uh, table with a lady there that said veteran resource center and i was like okay maybe i should just go look at this started talking with her and she was telling me that their office was about seven to ten blocks away from my house oh knew this resource center was even there and i was more upset about that because i'm like well why didn't i get the information to know that these actual resources exist um so I, I ended up, I went one day and they were said, we could have some therapy sessions if you want some group talks. Um, I was like, okay, well, I started telling my story and I just felt completely nauseous after speaking with, um, with the counselor and he says, you know what? I'm not ready. Uh, I might come back some other time, but I, I can't do this. Um, I never went back, but I wish I did, but I wouldn't have been able to have this breakthrough that I have. Right. But I was more fortunate enough because I'm in Chicago. I'm in a very large city, so a lot of these resource centers are already available. A lot of these soldiers are from these small towns in the middle of nowhere, and maybe the closest VA hospital is maybe two, three hours away. Maybe the closest resource, resource center is maybe even farther away. Yeah. So it's... It's a kind of a double-edged sword of it all. Just there's not um, information that is not readily available. And especially when you first come out for the first couple of years, you really need that support. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have it, there must be a lot of suicide rates and mm -hmm. and screw ups of some sort. I know the last three months of my contract, I was home. Um, I would get a call, an email almost every day to re-enlist. I even had recruiters come up to my door asking me to re-enlist. And it's just like, okay, you keep, you keep coming and calling me to come back, but how about you call me Help me an email for a resource center? And the day, the day my contract was completely done, in 2013, I did not get a call, an email, or nobody ever came to my house ever again. The, the, never. 
Wow. A little upsetting that that actually does happen. I mean, you you want you want me to come back, but you don't also want to give me the help uh, if I don't want to. Right. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? Although, um, not for that part, but I did know quite a few military men um, that were either in the military still in the United States or just retired. And they can, they have so many more opportunities in the, in the United States than in Canada. Um by getting special discounts and i mean that doesn't help your brain and and the person you are but um opportunities for their kids to go to school for less than what the average person would have to pay or um those kinds of things um disneyland <laughs> for uh, a military person price is different um, those kinds of things. We don't have that in Canada. Uh, I don't, I don't really think we're given the, or veterans or military or ex-military are given much of anything. So I guess you're a little bit further ahead than what we are, but still, um, yeah, maybe I'm just not aware of it, but. Yeah, we, we do get that stuff. Some of it's nice, but I mean, um, Nothing to help your head. <laughs> yeah. I guess. Oh, another another thing they always like guys that are getting out. They're they're telling they'll tell them, oh yeah, uh, there is a job waiting out there for you. Uh, people love to hire veterans because they're so well disciplined. Well, the, well that's true, but at the same time, there's a long line to get those jobs because every soldier that's getting out is told that same thing. And yeah. Um, it's just you're waiting. I mean, I, I even went to a couple of uh, what are they like job conventions for veterans. Um, I went one time. I thought it went pretty well. I talked to a lot of people. Never got one single call back. I talked to a bunch of other guys. I'm like, hey, you guys get calls? I'm like, no, no, never got anything. It was more crazy, like, isn't it? Like a dog, dog and pony show of it all. Yeah. It's just. I, I might have went to one other one after that and never got another call again. I'm like, you know what? This is just a waste of my time. Yeah. So, um, did you ever want to, because you were in that shooting kind of being a gunner, did you, are you still interested in going to um, shoot? Shooting range or anything like that or no? I get, I get that question asked all of the time. Um I'm not against guns. I mean, I have one. Um, I think I'm more. I'm more anal about the safety portion of it. I know because you I, saw it. <laughs> I, I go to I go to gun. I'll go to like a range or something, and I have all that safety protocol in my head. So I it just turns on like a switch on how to properly do things. Some people say like they've never seen that side of me. Like I come, I'm completely different at that mode. Like something just switched on, and I'm like, well, that's. I don't want nothing happen to you. I don't want nothing happen to me. You know. And yeah. You turn around and then you end up shooting me on accident. That's something just. Yeah, but. Um, I mean, I, I'll go to the range. It's fine. Um, I, I, I tell people. Um, what I experience, and if I ever do it again, it's, it's I'm all right with it. 
It's not real interest, though. It doesn't really. No, it's not. A, no. Not a big interest. So what really makes your boat float now? What do you really, other than your fish, what do you think really uh, makes you happy? After. Other than talking with me. <laughs> after I had that, my breakdown in my kitchen, my, my fish and my tanks, they didn't do it for me anymore. It became more of a job and I lost interest in it very quickly, but I had a lot of my fish for geez, three, five years. So they've kind of became family and it was kind of hard for me to, to give them away. And, but I mean, I, I have a tattoo of my favorite fish that I had over the years. So I always will have them with me. They, they helped me. Mm -hmm. that, so I always remember them. Um, I mean, I have other memorial tattoos on me that makes me never forget what I went through. I mean, I, people ask me about my tattoos all the time and all have stories. That's, it's my way of expressing what I went through and everything has a story behind it. That's um, cool. Right now it's, um, Mainly what drives me now is um, getting my mental health back. In the last year and a half, I've done tons of healing. I'm so much more at peace with myself that sometimes I don't know what to do with myself. It's kind of like I don't have that burden anymore of having to deal with it. Stuck in your head. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah not, not stuck in my head anymore. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, does there anything that makes you like enjoy life now? Like, is it to go fishing or camping or traveling or staying at home? And um, it's mainly, mainly my kids. I do tons of things with my kids, going on adventures and doing experiencing new things. Um, we have the big aquarium here in Chicago. So we go all the time. And oh, cool. So since I don't have my fish here, I could go see fish over there. So yeah, that's a, other hobbies try to interest me, but um, yeah, it's mainly work for me. And um, I don't know, it's just the peace of mind is more of kind of my hobby now. I don't have to dwell on things anymore. So mm -hmm. What gets me going, and, and do, doing these also gets me going too to help. Um, soldiers but mostly a lot of family members that don't know how to help their veteran or soldier so i try to or husband or wife or spouse or partner or friend yep do you guys get together still then um small group of you once in a while a lot of a lot of my friends are in different states but we keep in contact all the time i mean that's maybe one of the things, good things about Facebook. <laughs> so yeah. uh, keeping in contact with all of them, and it helps a lot. Did COVID really hurt your healing process? <laughs> Funny enough, I think the, like everyone was panicking about being secluded inside their homes. Being in the military deployed, that's kind of like what we all did. So it really wasn't any of a change for me. I think I, I've been in that situation before where being secluded, not being able to do things, I was kind of used to it. So my mindset actually kind of helped in that way. Mm, that's good. That's really good. Did you have any last final notes for listeners 
other than getting your book? Um, it sounds really, really intriguing. Sorry. Do you have a copy there? Uh, yeah, I do. I have one here. Um, there it is. A bomb. It's a bomb hunter story. My life clearing the roads of Iraq. Awesome. And it's on Amazon, everybody. And it's um, the links are down below for everybody to uh, click on the link and you can order one yourself. It sounds very, very interesting, even from a female point of view. I, I'm very intrigued with, you know, just the story of it all. It's very, very interesting. And it, uh, from being a military brat, I have to admit that it was hard to come back to, to a regular civilian life because I didn't fit in. I couldn't talk about anything that I experienced because no one else would understand what I experienced. Um, that's what I found difficult coming back to Canada. Um, I couldn't just jump into university and have a whole bunch of friends because what I experienced, they had no idea and I had no common thing with them. So you must have experienced that bit of time where it's hard to adjust. Yeah, friendships were really hard. Um, that was also another thing with new soldiers that were coming in was that you didn't want to develop these friendships because if they did pass, I didn't want to feel that same feeling anywhere where I lost a friend or a brother or anything like that. So yeah. coming back here, it was a little hard to make friendships because I still had that mindset. I would be more standoffish. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, uh, it's a little rough. Yeah, yeah. So everybody, um, his book is now available on Amazon and... Um, it's a what an amazing story. Um, I really felt like I went to a movie listening to you. I just, you know, watched a movie. And um, you did an awesome job of being vulnerable and having the courage and bravery to, to really bring that out and um, share it with others because I think it's really important and I know how difficult it has to be for you to do that. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that with all the listeners. Um, more things I talk about are the different trainings. There were some more incidences that happened with other soldiers that were troubling. And I, I know I expressed a lot of emotion here, but in there I go through just the physical grind of each of us. It's just not about me. I always say yeah. that my story is a small chapter in a bigger book because there's thousands of other stories out there that experience different things and hardships. Um, it's not just about me. That's another thing I wrote it was to tell our story because when I tell people I'm a combat engineer, they're not sure what that is. And then when yeah. I tell them what I did, it's always the, the, are you crazy? Um, like what the heck is wrong with you type of thing? I mean, I mean, we, we, we were even, we had a lot of uh, VIPs come out and we even had a few NPR reports come out on us um, trying to grasp and what we actually did. Um, 
I'd yeah. say yeah, we're we're a little crazy, but I mean, someone has to do the job. Well, it makes us all the world go around. I guess when we choose it, we have to stick with it. Just like if you join a team, you have to join it and put in your time. Unfortunately, whether you like it or not, but it's obviously giving you some tools to move ahead of some sort. You might not know what those are yet, but they must be going to happen at some point for you. Yeah. Learn those lessons. We, we, I hate lessons of life <laughs> that we're given. It's like, why did you throw that my way? Why'd you do that to me? So I'm sure we all say that in many ways, but yeah. Um, well, thank you for being so open. Thank you for sharing that with the listeners because it's, uh, you know, his book is there for everybody to uh, read it and and really enjoy your journey through this because um, it sounds like it was an incredible one. And uh, thank you for, for being so open with us. Uh, thank you for allowing me to share it. Oh, well, thank you. Um, well, I don't want to end this story because it's uh, – thank you, Eric. It, it was – it was awesome. And I could probably spend all afternoon talking to you some more about it mm -hmm. um, and asking more and more questions. Cause the more you talk, the more questions come up. So um, maybe we could uh, come visit this again and maybe take a different angle on it if you'd like, uh, because it's so very, very interesting. And please take a moment and share and subscribe to our channel, everybody, because uh, we're going to have some more, awesome guests like Eric come on our show um, and you don't want to miss them and click on that bell. I have to get my hand out, Eric, because this is my, my hand to show. <laughs> and I never seem to get it right. Click on that bell somewhere down there, subscribe, like, and share and click on that bell. And I have to sing the seventies song because um, ring my bell, ring my bell down below over there somewhere and click and subscribe. Thank you followers. Thank you subscribers. Thank you. Um, we can, we couldn't do the show without you. Um, and of course with Eric, no one's Superman. So expect the unexpected. I'm sure Eric felt like he was Superman a few times in his life on that, um, in that unit, because he must've felt like, why was I still allowed to be here when you see your other brothers? Uh, have their lives taken away. And I think that's probably one of the difficult cases of, of that why question that uh, you need to overcome. When something tragic happens, you always say, why? Why me or why them? Or it's, it's just the first thing that comes in your mind and it's hard to get out of. So when, um, when you're thinking of someone right now listening to this show, that you love and care about, please reach out to them. Please pick up that phone. We still have phones. Please FaceTime them, Skype them, Zoom them, whatever it is, go and see them. Tell them how much you love and care about them because you don't know what tomorrow may bring. I hope we've inspired each and every one of you and motivated you with Eric's story today. And um, thank you very much for sharing and watching and listening to our show today. And I always end our podcast and our live show with Carol Burnett. Do you know who Carol Burnett is, Eric? Yes, I do. <laughs> oh, awesome. 
um, it's hard to not know her, isn't it? Because um, she's just such an awesome, funny lady that she just makes you laugh. And that's what I try to help people with is every bad case might, there's always a silver lining in it somewhere for all of us. So I'm so glad we had this time together just to have a laugh or sing a song. Seems we just get started. And before you know it, comes a time we have to say so long. So, so long, listeners. Thank you. Thank you so very much. Danke fürs Zuhören, meine deutsche Freunde auch. Thank you for my German listeners. Thank you for my audience in the United States, Canada, and Ireland. You guys are kicking some ass. You guys are coming up and are listening, and I have to work on my Irish accent. And Swedish too. Uh, Sweden, I'm going to have to work on my Swedish accent. If you beat Ireland, I will have to say something in Swedish for you. So I will need some help with that. So thank you, everybody. Thank you for coming on our show today. Thank you. Thank you so very, very much. And until next time, stay safe, be kind, lots of love. Bye for now.